Hello, my name is Gareth Tarr from Brooklyn's Members TV. Uh, we're here today to interview uh, Oliver Hill, who has written this book here, which uh, I, I reviewed in the Brooklyn's Bulletin recently. This is the uh, biography of Louis Cotillon, and it's, um, it's entitled Louis Cotillon, Engineering Impresario of Humber, Sunbeam, Talbot and Darrock. Uh, welcome, Oliver. Um, I have to say myself, I, I, if you'd have asked me who Louis Cotillon was six months ago, I wouldn't have known. Um, and I'm sure that's probably true of uh, a lot of our members. I did then read the biography of uh, Sir Henry Seagrave, and obviously his name immediately comes up then. And obviously I'm aware of a lot more. And as a consequence of that, obviously I've read your book. And um, so maybe as a start question for our members, can you explain who Louis Cotillon was and uh, how important he was? What was his significance? Right. He, Louis Cotillon was, well, to start off with, he was French, um, which um, for somebody important in the British motor industry is perhaps a little surprising, but he came over to England um, when he was about 20 as a young man, having done his uh, engineering training in France and, and worked for a couple of years for various companies in Paris. But he obviously thought that the, the grass was greener this side of the channel and that there were more openings for uh, trained engineers over here. And so he, he came to England and uh, worked for Humber for a number of years, the chief engineer of Humber, uh, then moved to uh, set up the Hillman Cotillon uh, Company. And we talked in the very early uh, years of the 20th century, aren't we? Right, the beginning of the 20th century, yes. He was, he was with um, Humber from 1902 to 1907, I think, if I get that right. Mm. Um, he then uh, had a couple of years with, with Hillman Cotillon, but that obviously didn't work out. And in 1909, he joined Sunbeam. Um, and that's really his his major contribution to um, the British motor industry was was during his time with Sunbeam, I suppose. Uh, but he was really because at that point, or as a result of his influence, Sunbeam became sort of within the top three of British motor manufacturers at the time. Uh, he was. Uh, a really significant figure in in the industry uh, in the early days particularly before the first world war but he went on um right up until 1930 uh, but sort of moving back to france slowly but surely obviously having read the book um i know you have connections with the cotillon family um would you like to explain what inspired you to write the book um, I have the, the good fortune, it's true, to be married to one of uh, Cotillon's granddaughters. Obviously, I'm a bit biased, but I would say the most beautiful one. Um, <laughs> and uh, as a, but my connection with Louis and his history, um, I was sort of brought up with it from a very young age because my father was a a sunbeam enthusiast, uh, perhaps the sunbeam enthusiast, if you like, and he wrote 
the great Bible on sunbeam racing cars uh, when he retired. And so I was sort of brought up surrounded by sunbeams and their history and admiration for all that they did. Um, subsequently, I, having got married, I lived and worked in Brittany for 10 years. Right. Um, and got to know the places where Louis was brought up and, and where his ancestors came from. And Kirtlin possibly didn't, uh, I mean, his, his parents, his, his father went into a, an asylum because he was an alcoholic when, yes. when Kirtlin was very young. And then, then his mother died when he was a teenager. Uh, so I, I don't know that he personally was particularly attached to the area and didn't go back very much um, mm. after he, he went off to Paris to do his studies. Well, he, he did his training at Cluny, which they, they have these um, schools in France called the, the Ecole des Arts et Métiers, which right. train engineers. Um, They're quite big on training in France and, and that kind of thing, aren't they? Yeah, yes, it was a very uh, a good system, very thorough system, I think. Um, originally set up by Napoleon but a lot of people well a lot of people I, I, if you think of Delage you think of um, Perrault you think of uh, Brésier uh, I think yeah, there's yeah. also another there are there you know a number of the major French names in the automobile industry did their training through that system right so it obviously worked so, yeah yes yeah. Yeah. And he learned his English from uh, an American artist, was it, or something? Yes, we think, we, well, certainly there, there was an American artist who uh, gave him and his brother English lessons when they were, I don't know, between, I suppose, five and ten years old, probably. Yeah. I'm not quite sure about that. Uh, so that must have been his grounding in English. Sure. Um, and I think that was sort of done in return for probably not paying the rent of staying in the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. around the hotel yes. uh, in Concano, just uh, oh. on, on the port there. Which, uh, but there's also the story that he he did his studies at, at college, but at the final year, he was deprived of his certificate uh, as an engineer right. um, because of bad behaviour. And we, right. we don't know what he did or didn't do, <laughs> what he got up to. But uh, it may well be that he thought, well, you know, if I go apply for jobs in the French industry, that this might come out, and it's much less likely to come out if I apply for a job in England. His, his reputation preceded him. <laughs> yeah, yes. And what sort of character was he? From what one could make out, definitely very a charismatic character. Right. Sort of mercurial. Uh, I think well, when, having come to England as a Frenchman, I think that was an advantage for him because he was then effectively classless. I think he, he, right. he, uh, he got to know people who were, you might say, way above him in class. Right. Uh, he was instantly thrown in with, with the rich and famous who were buying ex his expensive motor cars. Sure. Um, but as a Frenchman, he could pass easily amongst them. Uh, I suppose he'd be a bit exotic, wouldn't he, in a way? Yes, so, yes. You know, not a novelty, shall we say. Yes. 
Um, if that's, if that's he, not cheapening it. But, uh. No, no. But he was evidently an unconventional character and, and very entertaining uh, to be with, one gathers. He, he uh -huh. kept his French accent right through. I think he sounded a bit like Maurice Chevalier. Right. But at the, the same time as being this charming character, he was a workaholic and uh, sort of never stopped. He was a driven driven man who, who kept so. going and uh, could never stop. His, his children complained that they were, uh, you know, they'd spend their school holidays being taken around these factories because he, he couldn't actually relax. And but Obviously from that, I mean, what do you think were his uh, main achievements in his career? If, if I, had to, I had to pick three, um, I, I suppose the first and probably the greatest would be the victory in the 1912 Coupe de Lotto race. Right. Um, Sunbeams sent a team of uh, four cars, weren't there, I think, um, which were basically standard 1216 Sunbeam touring cars, obviously tuned up and, and lightened and uh, with special bodies and so on, but the engine was just the, the 1216 Sunbeam from pre-war. Uh, and there they were up against huge 14-litre Fiat's and uh, the seven and a half-litre Peugeot's and, and so forth. And they came, the, there were two races run in, in parallel, the, the Grand Prix and the Coupe de l'Auto were run at the same time. Right. Sunbeam won the Coupe de l'Auto race. They came first, second, and third, beat all the opposition. But they were also third, fourth, and fifth in the Grand Prix itself. Right. Um, and that was a tremendous achievement. And it was the first time, really, that Sunbeam had, had ventured into international motor racing on a serious basis. Uh, and uh, that sort of not only cemented Coteland's reputation, but I think it set Sunbeam onto, onto a course of success. It's, it's probably his greatest achievement, I would say, or the, the best thing from his point of view that he did. He then, in between the wars, 1923, he was responsible for the first British car to actually win uh, the French Grand Prix um, and that's something that wasn't repeated until um, I from memory I think was Jack Brabham yeah I think uh, that. and I forget the date <laughs> of Coteland's great achievements was Seagrave's 1927 uh, 200 mile an hour record with the right. 1000 horsepower Sunbeam. Um, I'm te technically perhaps not as uh, interesting as the Grand Prix cars, um, because the 1,000 horsepower Sunbeam was powered by two uh, aero engines that had been in, in storage, and they cobbled them together in this, what they called the 1,000 horsepower car. But it, you know, the, the fact that that all worked as it did um, is, again, a great tribute to uh, Coteland's uh, ability to, to 
pull things together out, out of out of nothing in a way. Sure, there was there was um there was an article on that car in um, the automobile, I think, in the summer when I was reading about C. Greb, I've, I've written an article which will appear in the Brooklyn's Bulletin in the not too distant future on Seagrave. Um, and that car was, that thousand horsepower something, as you say, had two engines, but it had one at the back with the power going forward, one at the front with the power going backwards. And how they got that to work in the middle with the gearbox, yeah. that's, that was a substantial engineering feat. Yes, yes. Um... They had to reverse one of the engines had to they had to reverse the rotation of uh, I forget which one I suppose probably the rear engine would have had to have turned yeah, in the opposite yeah. direction yeah um, and and the other point about that car which what I think was remarkable was they didn't just break the land speed record they absolutely smashed it they, they added something like was it twenty seven mile an hour extra on top or something it was twenty yeah. to thirty mile an hour faster which as a percentage was fantastic. Yes, at that time, the, 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 the previous, was it the previous five attempts or something had just sort of nudged the, the speed up by a couple of miles each time. Yeah, it was just um, over 170, then, wasn't it? Yes, yes, and then Seagrave came along and, and blasted it through, through the roof, as it were. Would you like to say it, explain a little bit what happened to him after he finished at Sunbeam? Because that was around about 1930, I think, wasn't it? Yes, it, it's um, um, untangling the Sunbeam history is quite difficult. Uh, obviously, they, after the First World War, Sunbeam merged with Talbot and Darroch, and it became the STD Combine. Yeah. Um, as far as I can understand, the finances were never terribly sound. Um, and quite early on, they had to borrow a lot of money at a very high interest rate over a 10 year period. And so really from from sort of mid 20s onwards that the whole thing <laughs> was doomed, if you like, because this uh, loan was had to be repaid and they just weren't making enough money to do that. It's often been said that Cotillon's racing, the expense of the racing team um, was to blame for this and I've tried to argue that I don't think that's, I mean obviously it was part of <laughs> he was spending money they didn't really have, um, but that the problems were much deeper than that and, and um, due to the financial structure of the group really, so it was sort of inevitable that that, that would collapse. Yeah, and that theme so, of uh, race motor racing, expenditure of motor racing, sort of outweighing the resources of a company has run throughout the history of motor racing. And I, I recently read a little bit of um, uh, Dennis Jenkinson's book on, uh, it's, it's not on Fraser Nash, just on Fraser Nash, it's on the whole story right through um, to AFN. And he makes a comment on, on similar lines, I think he was referring to GM. And he said, you know, I spent too much time um, concentrating on racing and not thinking about running the company properly. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's probably true of a lot of yeah, organisations. Yeah. yeah, and just a yeah. little bit more on early Aston Martin, and that's very similar sort of story, yeah. you know. And there's no doubt that Kirtland was completely passionate about motor racing, that it was, um, I don't know whether that was what he lived for, but it, it was the, the thing that interested him 
ab above everything else, I think. So the, the Sunbeam collapse was sort of slow and painful, um, but the board of directors were changed in 1930. And he, he had a nervous breakdown at that point, but then he reinvented himself. He designed diesel aero engines. He was convinced that diesel was going to be the future for, for big aero engines. Right. And he patented various, had various patents on, on in, in fuel injection pumps and so on, which he built up into, into aero engines that were at their, at the time, pretty advanced as far as I can make out. But, but nobody, there were various other people trying to do similar things and nobody really made diesel aero engines work. Um, but Kotlin came, came pretty close. Uh, so that was one of his things he got into. And then he acquired the rights for uh, making and distributing Lockheed hydraulic brakes in France. Right. And for KLG spark plugs. And so he became the, around the, the companies, the French companies, uh, which marketed and produced those, those products. And that was really what, what kept him out of mischief uh, until he died. He, he, was, he was at work when he, in, in 1953, uh, when he died. Um, he was still working for Lockheed. Right. 63, 63, sorry. Yeah. Not 10 years off his life, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so he went back to France and, and through, lived there throughout the Second World War, uh, somehow managed to keep out of the way, even though he had an English wife, um, uh, he, he went on working through and uh, after the Second World War he was became president of the what's called the SIA which is like the Automobile Engineers Association mm -hmm. uh, in France and, and was sort of one of the grand old men of, of French motoring. It was quite, quite an amazing career really but I think this was, this was part of my reason for writing the book if you like was that I felt that his history had got scattered on on either side of the channel and um, it needed to be brought together in one place yeah and you were as you say not many people know about him in England now um, unless you're interested in in early motor racing um, and even fewer people know about him in France I think so I, I felt he was he'd fallen between two stools and this was a guy who was worth recording he, he's clearly had um, an important piece in certainly British motor racing history and either side of the second of the first world war um, and, and I guess you're I mean a you have a unique position to do that because you have access to the you know you're a member of the family and access to family photographs um, but I, I, th I felt, well, thank God someone has recorded this story because uh, otherwise it might be lost. And uh, did that add a special responsibility? Did you feel the special responsibility when you were writing the book that uh, I have to do the definitive thing? Or was that just natural anyway? You wanted to do the best job? Yes, I wanted to do the, the best job. I, I there, were, there were a number of things. One, I wanted to make it as accurate as I possibly could. And obviously there are things that we don't know and never will um, but I've been I think I've been quite well trained um, in doing PhD research into, right. into getting it right into getting getting the detail if you like 
mm -hmm. I'm fortunate enough to have bound copies of the autocar and the motor to, to yeah. be able to refer to, as well as family albums and so on. I felt I, I had more information than anybody else. Um, and nobody was knocking on the door saying, I'd like to write a biography, can you help me? So I, I thought, well, I'd better get on with it. And Carol de Chabot, who was Coquelin's eldest granddaughter, mm -hmm. and who was actually brought up by him during the war, um, she was very keen to, to be able to tell her children and her grandchildren about him uh, in answer to her request that I was I uh, started this great feat <laughs> went on for about 20 years really these, book, these books always do don't they because yeah. uh, I, I gather you've written other books on furniture because you're a member of the heels furniture family is that correct that's that's right. I well, the only other book I've written is is about my grandfather, who was Sir right. Ambrose Heald, who who was the man who uh, put the Heald's shop on the map, if you like. He was a design pioneer at the beginning of the century. So it's quite interesting, the similar sort of period, really. Uh, so in a way, that was quite helpful to have already been through that period and to know a bit about the I mean, the effects of inflation and, and that sure. sort of stuff. Yeah. Do you have any any plans to do any more books at all or not? Not at the moment, no. There'll no doubt be more articles. I've always sort of written articles for the Sunbeam, the STD journal and um, right. various things connected with, with that. For me, one of the uh, features of the book is the photographs and the family photographs. Um, and there's some nice ones of Brooklyn's there, for example. Do, are they are those photos wi more widely available or are they kept within the family or is there any plans to make them available or not i th uh, i think most of them are, are probably fairly widely available i mean right. the particularly the motor racing ones um appeared in my father's book whatever that was right. 40 okay. years ago um I've added as as much as I can. I've added things that haven't been published before. It's interesting that um, Brooklyn's was undoubtedly very important to Coatlin, and he paid tribute to it uh, when he, he raced began. There, didn't he? he raced there. He he had um, a number of um, special cars that he built, sprint cars that he built for Brooklyn's, um, but. I think more importantly, it was a testing ground for for the production cars, um, and he said that you know his his early international successes certainly wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have been able to test thoroughly at Brooklands before uh, going abroad, and uh, it was the facility at that time that the the French didn't have, and and uh, so he he felt he was very fortunate being able to use Brooklands. I mean, yes, one of the reasons why uh, Lock King built Brooklyn's was as a test facility for the British motor industry. And, uh, but, and, and reading uh, uh, both the Seagrave book and your own book, um, yes, I, I mean, I know Brooklyn's was used as a, a test facility before, particularly they designed a new Grand Prix car, or I think before they went to Le Mans in, was it 25? Um, again, they used Brooklyn's to test the cars prior to you know taking them to the race so it yeah. obviously was a, and and of course um 
Well, you mentioned KLG, uh, Ken Elmley Guinness, of course, was the man behind that. He broke the land speed record at Brookens in a sunbeam, didn't he? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that was a, astonishing because it it involved going the wrong way around the, the track because you had to have a two-way uh, you know, yes. speeds going in two directions. I think he was sort of pushing the limits of what Brooklands could could cope with even yeah well that was days. the last time the land speed record was beat was broken at Brookings with yeah. uh, KLG yeah. that was 1923 I think wasn't it uh, it's a wonderfully atmospheric place I find it it uh, you can imagine with, with the clubhouse and the banking and so forth it you definitely um, have a a feeling of, of what it must have been like to to race there and um, uh, no, I think it's a wonderfully atmospheric place, and uh, I look forward to coming again before too long. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and at that stage, I think probably we'll say thank you very much, Oliver, for uh, your time in uh, um, talking about your book and uh, Louis Cotelin, and uh, we look forward to seeing you at Brooklyn sometime in the near future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, come on. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a pleasure to say a few words about the silver bullet designed by Giant uh, Managing Director and Chief Engineer Mr. Louis Cotelan for Mr. K. Don in his attempt to create <coughs> a land speed record. It is the combined and enthusiastic effort of a band of loyal workmen who have worked continuously for the past six months fighting against time and have produced what we believe to be the finest racing car ever produced. In calling upon or introducing to you Mr. Coatland, our chief engineer. Mr. Coatland, ladies and gentlemen. Where is he? Come on, that's good. Don't you go on the ride there? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, today here, staff of engineer of the Sunbeam, which had around me, who have been working at great pressure to get this car ready to be in time to go to America. And the main, uh, also, I uh, work night and day. This is the most powerful car ever produced. It has 4,000 horsepower. So we are full of hope of breaking the record, as also we have the finest driver that is today in England, and which we have picked amongst the great many drivers who are at Brooklyn. We have great pleasure in introducing Mr. K. Dom. I want to thank you and the Sunbeam Company for producing me what I consider the greatest engineering feat ever put on wheels. <coughs> so Don, when do you hope to leave for America? 
We're leaving on Wednesday next on the Burn Garrier from Southampton. On the Burn Garrier, Southampton. And uh, when do you hope to make your attempt? Some date between March the 15th and 31st. The actual day will depend entirely on the conditions. And how long to decelerate? About four miles. As it, at what maximum speed do you think you will attain? We, are, we have hopes of doing some speed between 240 and 250 miles an hour.